1: Hello and welcome to The Story Chunder. This is the podcast where people tell unbelievable true stories from their lives for your delight or amusement. I'm your host, Matt Young. This week's stories were collected during our Insta Live events, which we have on Monday evenings at 7 o'clock here in Brisbane, Australia. I'm totally fangirling over our first guest, Courtney Monsma, Because she's about to play Princess Anna in Frozen, the musical here in Australia. And she also played Catherine Howard in the musical Six. And I'm a big musical theatre fan, as well as a musical theatre performer myself. Courtney told us a story about a very famous visitor that came backstage while she was doing Mamma Mia. And then a bit more about what she does when she's not in a show.
2: I've got two little shorter stories. Um, Took me a little while to think about it. The first one is to do with Mamma Mia, actually. So... Two, almost two years ago, yeah, was in Mamma Mia that toured Australia. We would have been in Sydney, I think, uh, about, like, fifth show of the week. Like, everyone was a little bit tired and it was interval and um, we were actually at the week bench, like, before Act 2. And we saw this, like, figure come behind us with these two men, this beautiful lady, and she whispered to us, she's like, oh, great job, girls, and kept walking. And I was like, oh, who was that? Like, who would be backstage? And one of my friends was like, ah, uh, that's definitely Celine Dion." And Celine Dion was um, backstage at our show and we were like freaking out. So the rest of the show was just, you know, cat and mouse of people being like, Celine Dion is watching and other people being like, no, no, she's not. Like, you know, every funny in a show, I feel like once a week, someone's, spreading rumors that there's celebrities in the audience. Like, I think one time someone said that Bear Grylls was watching. I was like, that's so random, why would he be here? And then I believed that he was and he wasn't. So we'd actually seen her, so we did know it was true um and yeah so for the rest of the show like the energy was like boom boom (laughs) really high um knowing that she was in the audience everyone was freaking out a little bit uh so at the end of the show she came backstage and she said hello to us and she's just an exquisite human being she's so beautiful and so well spoken and the people that obviously didn't believe then believed um but apparently the security guards were saying that there were um people in the audience like because she was singing along to the ABBA music and the one the uh, people in front of her turned around and like shushed her while she was singing and then I think like soon after they turned around and they were like oh that's Celine Dion (laughs) and then she was escorted out so like I couldn't imagine being that person to quiet Celine Dion from singing her heart out um, but yeah, so that was super exciting. Like thinking back when I listened to her music now, I was like, she watched our show, like watched me in the, the back second row, like wonder if she spotted me, who knows? Um, <laughs> but she was wonderful. So that's my first little story. Um, my second story isn't related to theatre at all. Uh, I went to New Zealand like two years ago with my partner and we rented this camp van and it was so beautiful. If you've been to the South Island, if anyone has been to the South Island, it's just well, Every part of New Zealand's beautiful. Um, so we we're sightseeing and we we're staying in this camper van and and having a little holiday there. And we'd spoken about like doing some extreme sports. Um, we'd spoken about maybe like doing bungee jumping or like go karting. And I'm not that, like that into that because I'm more into just performing. Like that's my extreme sport. I would say. Um, and we came up with the idea of skydiving and I was like, oh no, I, that's not for me. Like I'd never thought about it. i never wanted to skydive, ended up skydiving. So we were driving around one day and cause we were driving everywhere. You know, if you were in a place, you had to do the activity there. Otherwise it'd take you a day to get to the next place. So we're in like Wanaka in uh, America, no, in New Zealand, and we rock up at this skydiving place. And my partner's like, yeah, today is the day. Like it's booked in. We're going skydiving and i was like no like i'm freaking out so i'm sitting in the car googling like what happens when you skydive like what does it feel like am i am i going to be okay all of these questions like trying to get any ounce of knowledge because i was like if i'm here i've got to do it so ended up gearing up um and surprisingly with skydiving like the thing that costs the most money is the video the skydiving itself is really cheap so i was the only one that got the video but my video like I haven't put it anywhere. It is so bad. I'm crying, like I'm, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because, and now this is the surprise part. Like I'm thinking, okay, you've got an instructor on your back. You're gonna be fine. You know, they they jump six times a day or more. Like that's their job. It's gonna be okay. And you know, Zane's here with me, so we'll be together. He can go first. I'll go next, and I'll see that it's fine. They load up the plane to go up, and there's probably like another eight people with us. They put him on the plane first and then eight people and then me. So I'm the first person to jump out and there's like eight people that I've never met and him at the back of this plane. So we're going up on this plane and I like look around and I'm just like death staring him like, what have you made me do? He's like at the very back, I'm the first person to jump out, I'm crying. Um, we get up to the top and it's like the door opens and I'm with this instructor I've never met and I just look down and I just look at and it was terrifying but funnily enough like when i was pushed out of the plane um i thought my stomach would drop and it would be really scary but it's like it just stopped like i was floating and my, it was so cold that all i was focusing on was my cold hands like as i was free falling and i didn't get one like feeling of like when you're on a roller coaster and your stomach drops i didn't get that once like it was surreal it was incredible so the moral of the story i'm glad i did it and it was an amazing feeling that exactly what google said actually like it's hard to describe what it feels like but it was so worth it so then six people later he landed on the ground after i'd been waiting after i had been waiting there for a while up first um and i'm just i'm so glad i did it and i have to find the video actually because You know, I watched it once and I like hid the USB because I was like, that's not going anywhere, (laughs) bawling my eyes out. But yeah, so that was a little surprise for the trip and something that I'm surprised that I even did, if I'm honest. So, yeah.
1: And whilst Courtney did not have a funny feeling in her stomach, our next storyteller, Charlene Marsters, did have a funny feeling in her stomach one day on the train on her way into Brisbane. And what happened next turned out to be a little bit of a surprise.
0: Yeah, so this story takes me back about 2011, so this is 2011, I'm about 21, um, I'm six months out of graduating from university, um, to take you back a little bit further than that, I'm the, I'm the second youngest of nine, and I'm the first one in my family to graduate from uni, um, and so it was a big thing, and it was, um, that level of independence and that level of achievement was something that I had really worked hard for, um, and I had done that by not dating all through high school. I drank a lot, I stole a lot, I did a lot of naughty things, um, but I kept my my grades straight and I kept boys out of my life. And then at about nineteen, I got a boyfriend, um, and they don't teach you how to break up with somebody, you know. I was never taught how to break up with somebody so I was in this relationship that I was pretty unhappy with but unsure of how to like maneuver this this field Um, especially when you live your life trying to appease people and, and do good things so I was like I'm I have to make it work about a year into it it just wasn't working it was really really tumultuous and we were trying to work it out And um, I remember being on the train from Ipswich, we're living in Ipswich and we were traveling, I was traveling to uni in Malkavats and I had to stop off in the city and thinking about, gosh, I really hate where I am right now and I don't know how to get out or um, how to just even do the things and, and, and be a grown up. And then feeling really, really tired and um just as the train ride went on i was like far out i'm really lethargic really 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 tired really like something's wrong with my body really about and then i got about to Milton, and then i was like i don't know if this is normal and then i got about to central and then i went oh when was my last period and then i kind of just was like when was my last
2: period
0: oh 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 no. And so I'm walking out of Central Station. My rain, my brain's racking itself and kind of going, I'm on the pill. Okay, so you miss a day. You're not really like in trouble, are you? Oh wow. Oh no. What, what could this be? And so then I walk to the Coles in the David Jones Centre in Queens Plaza. Um, and I start pacing up and down the aisle, like, oh, I just need to get a pregnancy test. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just clear this up right now. We'll clear this up right now. And the idea of actually purchasing one was so terrifying that I stole it. I stole four. So I (laughs) shoplifted four pregnancy tests in the middle of this Coles supermarket because I didn't want to have to go through purchasing one. And then I ran to the bathrooms of the David Jones, um, Plaza and took the test and then it came out positive. Surprise. And that is how I found out I was pregnant with my first son, with my only son. Um, and that's where it kind of was like, wow. And I used all four in that store uh stall. And I walked out of there like, motherfucker, motherfucker, mother, mother, what have I done? My first ever boyfriend, and I am I this is it. You I've not learned how to break up with someone, and this is what you get, Charlene. This is what you get you get a baby <laughs> and um and so we had the baby and he's eight and we're no longer together um the thing is about having a child they really motivate you to make some choices that you otherwise would have spent a long a lot more time on um and kind of was like no it's, i can't um stay in this just because of me it's not about me anymore so um my life is a lot happier and he's a nine in october and my. And I found out about him um, through shoplifted uh, pregnancy tests. (laughs) Nicole's. That's my story.
1: And I always enjoy a beautiful story by Charlene Marsters. Before we get to our next story of Surprise, which was the theme for the week, if you haven't noticed, here is a promo for another podcast from That's Not Canon, which is the podcast collective that I'm a part of.
2: Hi. Hi, my name is Vanessa. And I am Asabi. And together we are Wine and Sympathy. sympathy. That's right, a brand new podcast coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Together we are going to talk about life, love, relationships, friendships, everything, issues, (laughs) and what it's like to be a fabulous 40-something in today's era. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. And we've got a lot of people that we need to talk to. Lots of people to talk to. So we will be bringing to you guests from Brisbane itself, interesting people that we think you need to know. So check us out. We're on all the socials, Insta, the Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Oh, We're everywhere. <laughs> we are everywhere. And we'll have a website coming soon. So check us out, Wine and Sympathy podcast. See, See ya. Soon.
1: Thank you, ladies. And now back to me. Well, actually back to Shad Wicca, who is a podcaster himself, a comedian, a radio host. And he now lives in Brisbane because he got fired on his way to a new job. And here's his story. And just a trigger warning here, there is a very foul word used in this story.
3: All right, well, I thought um, an easy one for me was the surprise I got uh, at the beginning of last year, um, which kind of got me ready for what's been going on right now, I'd imagine. So I was, uh, like you said, I was in Cairns uh, doing breakfast radio. I'd uh, been up there for about four years, which was about four of my six years in radio at the time, um, and I had gotten uh, offered a promotion uh, down on the New South Wales Central Coast about an hour from Sydney. Really big opportunity. It was um, actually one of the places I grew up. My family was there, so I was super stoked that I got this chance. Um, so I got all the kind of offer done, signed up, all that kind of stuff. Got back to work from my holiday and they go, okay, you're going to start your new job down south in a week. So just get through this last week on air and then you can come down to the new breakfast show you start on the Tuesday. So I was like, all right, sweet, I'll get through this. No dramas. Uh, and what happened was uh, on the Tuesday, we had uh, the Prime Minister on our breakfast show in Cairn. Uh That's Scott Morrison. Um, and it was only recent when ScoMo had actually kind of taken over the top job. And uh, we did our usual thing, had the radio chat. And when you have politicians on the shows, like on radio shows, you've got to do this little song and dance where they get to talk about the things they want to talk about then you kind of take the piss with each other a bit and then they usually go. But before they leave, their media team sits you down and takes about 50 different photos of you and the Prime Minister so they can share it on social media. And uh, me and my co-host are standing there going through all these photos, like just standing smiling, smiling, whatever. And uh, I just happened to be in one of the photos holding uh, a novelty mug that I was using that morning um, that had cunt written on it. <laughs> and uh, one of these 50 photos had me standing, holding it facing forward, because obviously in the midst of all the photos, I've realised what I'm holding. <laughs> and the comic in me, the comedian in me, all of a sudden took over the uh, radio host in me and decided to just turn that cup a little bit Towards the camera. And it just so happened that out of those 50 photos, that was the one that Scott Morrison shared on all of his social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, bit of a surprise for him, bit of a surprise for me as well, to be honest. Um, anyway, that happened on a Tuesday. <laughs> and uh, I kind of, as the day went on, kind of realized that's what happened. Had a little bit of a laugh about it. And uh, again, I kind of, I got on Instagram, I think, and had a bit of, took a piss out of the fact that it had happened. And then the next day, just got on with my job on the Wednesday, kind of didn't think much about it, just kind of moved on. And uh, so the cup mug thing happens on the Tuesday. I go back to work on Wednesday do the show, get on air, on air on Thursday, my last day on air. We do a big farewell because I've been there for a while. We had guests on, said the buys, got in my car, Packed up all of my life into my car. My border collie sitting in the seat next to me and said goodbye to my girlfriend who was finishing up her job. And she said, All right, babe, I like, had a safe trip. I'll meet you down there in a month's time because I just put in my notice for my six figure job because we're going to follow your radio dream down to the Central Coast. And I was like, Sweet as, babe, I'll we'll see you down there. So I drive out of Cannes. And uh, as I'm driving down, this mug photo is starting to do the rounds on Twitter. And news.com writes an article about it. Then another paper writes an article about it. Then my phone starts ringing for people wanting to ask me about it and I ignore it. I get calls from the people I'm about to work with and they're like, look, it should be fine. Like we're just figuring it out. You know, you did fuck up, you know. Uh, anyway, I get to Mackay, uh, cause it's such a big drive down and I spend the night in Mackay. I wake up the next morning and as I'm driving out of Mackay, I get a call from, um, the head of, of uh, content for the company. And he says, hey, mate, um, can you come back to the Mackay offices? We've got to have a uh, quick chat. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this isn't about the mug, is it? <laughs> and he replied simply with a,
1: well, let's
3: chat when you get back here. So I was like, oh, man, I think I'm done like, here. I get, I get back in the car, I turn around, I drive back to Mackay. I've never been to this offices before in my life. So I get there and it's only 8.30 in the morning, so it's quite early. Like the workplace hasn't really started. The breakfast shows are on, but everyone else isn't there. So I go up into this office and a lady who's like setting up the place is like, yeah, just go into this boardroom. I sit at this boardroom and I'm at the end of a long, like just classic conference room, you know. I'm at the end of a long table. At the end of the table is a TV screen and uh, I'm sitting there and a lady sitting at the front desk as well. And on the TV screen is the boss that called me. And he's like, oh, hey, Chad, like, thanks for coming. Look, Karen's here uh, to be your support person. Now, I don't know if her named Karen. I've forgotten, but it's easy. So She's like, this is your support person. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, they don't bring a support person into a meeting to be like, hey, mate, good job the other day. Can't wait <laughs> to see you at the new promotion down south. So I'm already shitting bricks. I'm like, oh, this is so fucked up. So we're sitting there, the TV is on, the guy just starts going, look, you know, they talk through the whole situation. I explain to him what happened. And uh, eventually they go off to deliberate. They come back onto the TV screen and he goes, look, mate, I still remember what they said. He's like, yeah, you embarrassed the prime minister, you embarrassed the CEO, you broke our social media policies, you fire fired effective immediately. And then the TV just turns off. So I'm just sitting at the end of this table, TV's done, Karen's still sitting there at the front. I have pushed back, I'm like freaking out going, what am I going to do? Like how am I going to tell my girlfriend who's quit her job now? How am I going to pay my bills? What am I going to do? I'm in Mackay, which is one of the worst towns ever in the world. I'm like what am I going to do here? And Karen stands up and turns me and just goes, oh, uh, I'll go get you a glass of water, mate. And I'm just thinking that is not what a support person <laughs> that is. That is not the kind of support that I'm looking for right now, to be honest, Karen. Um, So she leaves the room. I'm still sitting there freaking out. And I've got my dog in the meeting with me because I wasn't going to leave her in the car for this whole endeavour. So I'm sitting there losing it. My dog walks up to me and tries to lick my face. I push her away. And she walks over to the corner of the room and does a shit on the carpet. (laughs) And I sit back and I do what anyone listening to this story would do in that moment. I walked over to my dog. I gave her a big pat and I said, good girl. And I grabbed her by the lead and I walked the fuck out of there, got in my car, drove to Brisbane. And that is why I now live here doing stand-up comedy.
1: And as my son would say, well, 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 how the tables have turned because we started with the Disney princess and we descended to this. Our final story today is by Dooney, a comedian uh, here in Brisbane, who has told me what I think is the most unbelievable true story that I've had on the podcast so far. You be the judge. This was actually recorded on Star Wars Day on the 4th of May.
4: But no, actually, my um, story dates back to when, it, when, when things were simpler, you know, to a time when we lived with a secure naivety about the world, if you like. And it was like, you know, it was a time before things like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and even before COVID-19. So, um, and it was actually a time before internet dating. You know, I'm not sure if you can remember that, but I fondly remember the times before eHarmony and Tinder Surprise and RSPCA. But... um, it was, it was actually the time when um, we watched TV on a TV, if you like, and email was becoming a big part of our lives, yeah? And it, it, it's what I like to call the days of dial-up, if you like. I'm not sure. Can you remember that, Matt? Yeah. yeah you can make that connection. There's a noise in the background yes. that was hopefully trying to remind you of that. Um, and so, and uh, this story revolves around the phenomenon of email, okay, and specifically scam emails, okay. So, it, I was a, um, in my 20s and all, all was going pretty well with my life. I had a g- good job, a great girlfriend. I had paid off my university debts and um, I even had recently bought my first new car, all right, so things were going really good. And um, so what I decided to do is I quit my job, broke up with my girlfriend, packed up my life, and I went backpacking. So um, and during this time, I was actually in Scotland at one point, which is a beautiful place, but I can't go into too much detail tonight. We don't have time, but it is. And I was in Scotland, and I was uh, checking my emails. Now, when you're backpacking during the days of dial-up, checking your emails meant you needed to go to an internet cafe or a library or somewhere where you could get that connection. Okay, so for me, there was quite some time. Sometimes there was days or even weeks between between times I would check my emails. So on this occasion, I was in this um, tiny Scottish town of Drumna Drockett and I was checking my emails. And I received an email uh, from a gentleman who called himself Dr Sani Ahmed. Okay, and Sani explained to me that he was a recently retired bank official of the Nigerian National Bank, and he had had retired with a prince's recognition, no less, for his um, services to the financial sector. Okay, and because Sani had identified me as someone he could trust, he wanted to make a proposal, and I mean, why not, you know? And so, obviously, Matt, you know, these days that this is a hoax email. I think these days it's known as the Nigerian 419 But this was very early days in, in this email scam and it was definitely the first one I'd received So I, I wrote back to Sani, and I said I would love to hear his proposal Okay, so he then wrote to me and said that um, During his time as a, as a banker he had embezzled around 50 million US dollars but he couldn't access it in Nigeria so what he wanted me, or what he would like me to do, is he wanted to send it to another country. And if I could pick it up, he would pay me five million US dollars. And at the time, that was around 12 million Australian, I think. Now, 99% of me knew this was all bullshit. All right. But there was this 1% of what if. Yeah. And 1% of what if is quite a powerful thing to an intrepid young man. Okay. So I, um, wrote back to Sani and said, I was in, I'm, I'm up for it. So then start, we started, he started getting in touch with me and he wanted to send the money to Cairo, but I said, no, London is good. And then he wanted to send the money to Barcelona and I said, no, London works. And then he wanted to send it to Rome and I said, no, London will do. And then he tried Frankfurt and Milan and Berlin and a bunch of other places. Now at this time also, I was still travelling around Scotland and this... This went on for uh, over two months, and to be honest, I thought he would get tired of it and give up. But then one day I was travelling, it's when I left Scotland, I was travelling with a massive hangover from Inverness to London on a bus, which is a massive bus ride with it, and about halfway through I got this phone call, and it was Sani. And he was quite upset and irate with me, and he was like, Mr Muldoon, this is the last chance, we must do something with this money now. It must be done straight away immediately or it will be gone. And I sort of said, oh, okay, mate, we'll send it to London and I might be able to do something. And he said, no, no, we can't send it to London. He was quite irate. And I said, well, mate, I, I don't know what to tell you. I can't help you. And I just hung up. And um, it was funny because then he emailed me again. I got to London. I emailed back. And then he rang me again as I was in London. And he rang and he said, look, we must act now. This is very important. And he was quite irate with me. And so I, um, I said, so you can't send the money to London. And he said, no, that can't be done. And I said, I'll oh, we'll send it to Amsterdam. And he stopped. And he had a thought. There was silence on the phone for a moment. And then he said, I will look into this. I will call you back. And within an hour, within one hour, he had called me back and said, yes, he could do that. So the next thing, oh, and not only was he sending the money to Amsterdam, he was also going to send his assistant, Mr. Michael Remedy, to to Amsterdam as well. And he would meet me there. And we would uh, go and do the business together, and that would be that. So the next thing I know, I'm, a, I'm on a plane to Amsterdam, and I'd never been there before. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the plan was that um, I would arrive, I would call Mr. Ramidi, and then we would get together, we would go and collect the, this package that had been sent to customs, and then and, and all that would occur. So I arrived, but my phone, didn't work, and so I thought, oh. so I wandered around the airport for a while, and I actually tried to see who I might be meeting. I picked out three people. All right, one person was a massive man, like seven foot tall, in a bone suit, and he was sitting in an airport bar. There was a second guy who was a shady-looking character wearing a bomber jacket, walking around, and then there was a third guy who was a really thick-set, muscular, big guy wearing all black. And he was wearing like a coat that they wore in the matrix you know a long black coat and so i've picked these three guys out in you know this is an international airport and then i went back to the gate and i sort of hung around and the next thing mr ramidi rang me and he's there you know mr muldoon where are you and i said i'm at the gate and he's like i'm at the gate also he said put your hand up and i said well there's no need mate turn around and this guy turned around and the look on his face because i was standing there in front of him was just like you know, because I'd kind of hustled him, if you like, in a way, and, and it was the first guy I'd picked out in the bone suit, the massive guy. So the next thing, we sit down in this airport bar, he grabs his cognac, and um, he goes through the plan. And the plan basically was that we were going to go and collect the money, but first up, I would need to give €7,000 to the person at customs and so I could collect the package. And I just said, well, that's the first I've heard about this. And he said, it's okay, it's okay, you know, you will get it all back, you know, it'll all be great. And I sort of said, well, no, I can't do that. So we sat there for an hour while he tried to convince me. And first up, I told him I don't have 7,000 euro, but then while we were talking, I had an idea. And I decided I would tell him I do have 7,000 euro, but I had to go into town to collect it. Okay, so then we decided, okay, we'll go to town get a hotel for the night. I would go and get the 7,000 euro. Tomorrow we'd come back, pay the money, collect the, passi- the package, the $50 million, and we'd all live happily ever after. You know? So off we went. And as we were walking out, he said to me, I'll call my driver. And he said, he made it a point to say, you will not speak to my driver, only I do. And I was like, oh, okay. And he calls his driver, and this guy comes and meets us. And it was actually the guy in the long matrix coat, the fixed set guy. Now, this guy was... Very intimidating. He looked like a person who has done bad things <laughs> in his life. So I sort of looked in, but I was there in my head, I was feeling like some sort of secret agent because I'd picked three people and two of them were involved in an international airport. So anyway, I jumped in the car with them. So off we went and we, we drove into Amsterdam. Now we went and we found a hotel. Uh, Mr. Ramidi didn't like the idea. He didn't want to stay in the same hotel as me for some reason. I'm not sure what, but anyway... Um, we went in, I checked in and then he, as we walked in, uh, he accompanied me to my room and he was actually the only person in the world besides the driver that knew where I was at this point in time and he came in and then we sat there for another hour or two while he went over and over this plan and he, at times it got, it got quite intimidating, he was actually physically hitting me with the back of his hand because we were in a small room telling me I could trust him, the $7,000 no, or Euro was nothing. And this went on for quite a while until eventually he started to wear out. And I said, oh, look, you know, we can talk about it more in the morning. Okay. And he, he went to leave and he kept trying, you know, obviously with this hustle, he's trying to convince me I can trust him. So as he's leaving, he's pulled out a, uh, a cross that he had on a necklace to say, again, you know, you can trust me. I'm, I'm a man of God and he's showing me this cross that's around his neck. And I said to him, oh, that, that's good, mate. And I just said, well, there, there was this pendant that was uh, given to me of a dove to keep me safe by my mum when I had travelled and it was, I, I'd put it on a strap on my backpack and I just pointed at it and I said, oh, well, you'll know what that is. And because he's so tall, he bent down to have a look at it and when he bent down, his jacket rode up and that's when I saw his gun. And at that point, <laughs> yes, and at that point... <laughs> I had a surge of adrenaline go through me that I'm sure would bring an elephant back to life. Okay? And um, my heart was thumping, you know, know, just all the symptoms of a massive adrenaline rush. But I had to keep cool because he didn't know that I'd seen it. And he's still talking to me, you know, you can trust me, come back tomorrow, we're going to do all this. And I just basically smiled and nodded at him for the last few minutes as I ushered him out the door. And he was still talking to me on the other side of the door while I locked it up. (laughs) So anyway, then eventually he, he left. Now, I'd already decided in my mind, after I, I sat there and had a moment, obviously, and then, of course, the paranoia set in. And let me tell you, Matt, I, um, I, didn't, I, you know, I didn't need to go to a coffee shop <laughs> in Amsterdam to get that. I was full, full beating. But then I thought, well, I'm going to go, but I'll have a bit of a look around Amsterdam. So I went down to go out to have a look around at like 2 o'clock in the morning. You know. Anyway, um. As I left the concierge, I had a chat to him and he said to me, oh, do you know these people that you came to the hotel with? And I said, oh, kind of. (laughs) And he made a point to say to me, he said, you must be very careful. He was a typically Dutch man, you know, lovely man. And he's like, you must be very careful of people in Amsterdam because some of them are really dangerous. And I just went, oh, okay. So I had a quick look around. Anyway, that night, obviously, I didn't sleep much. But that morning, at 7am in the morning, the phone in my room rang, and it rang every 15 minutes until I left, and um, I didn't answer it, obviously, because I was freaking out, and uh, he and the only people in the world that knew where I was, was Mr. Ramidi and his driver. So what I did is I, I checked out, I walked to the train station, got the train to the plane to the airport, and I flew back to London. <laughs> And so, and it's I know I know it's um, a good if you can finish off a story with a joke or a euphemism or a lesson you've learned or something like that. But I don't really do that with this. But what I can to say is, the best part of this whole experience for me probably came a few years later when I was back in Australia, and I was working as an export manager with a business. And uh, obviously, in that role, a lot of sp- scam emails were sent to the marketing email address, and um, one day the IT manager let slip that he thought I was away, out of the country. And I said to him, oh, have you been reading my emails, have you? And he said, yeah, we the whole department does. We love them. They're so entertaining. And he said, but what we don't understand is we are never quite sure who your real customers are and who you're, you're not. Because what I'd been doing is I replied to all these scam emails and I was meeting with these people, these hustlers, in airports all over the world because I, like, I quite like the idea of them going to meet me and me never showing up. And so, <laughs> if there is any, um, if there is, oh, and, and the IT manager, he used, to, he used to worry about me, he'd say, aren't you worried they'll come to Australia and try and get you? And I said to him one day, so I said, mate, if they ever come to a country town in Australia, you know, to get me, it's gonna make for one hell of a story, isn't it? So, <laughs> the, the only lesson I can say is, is respond to your scam emails and organize to meet them at places all over the world and just don't show up. (laughs) That's that, mate.
1: (laughs) And with that story, we come to the end of another podcast with The Story Chunder and your host, Matt Young. Look for us across all socials. We also have a webpage, thestorychunder.com. And if you feel so inclined, please uh, make a donation for our storytellers there or support That's Not Canon Productions on Patreon. We look forward to seeing you next time for more unbelievably true stories from our lives. Enjoy and stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,